are working our way through the book of Genesis. We are not going to get through the whole thing uh, this semester. We're really looking at Genesis 1 through the story of Abraham. And up until this point, we've been talking about these big themes of creation, of the fall of sin and shame, and uh, even the gospel being promised in Genesis 3. And now we're getting into how all of these things begin to play out in um, those who came after Adam and Eve. And so this morning we're talking about the, the story of Cain and Abel, a story that if you've grown up around church, you've grown up around Christianity, uh, even if you haven't, you've probably heard of Cain and Abel. But like so many of these early chapters of Genesis, uh, it, it may be a story that you've never actually studied in depth before. And, and I believe it's a story that um, has deep meaning to our own stories. And so I want to pray for us, and then I'll read um, this uh, portion of this chapter, and we'll dive right in. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, that it is God-breathed, uh, that it is living and active. Help us to believe that this morning, uh, that you would guard our hearts and minds in such a way that we wouldn't approach the Bible like any other book. Or even this morning as we study Cain and Abel, that we wouldn't study it like just any other story. Because we know not only is this a true story, but it is our story. And help us to see not only our stories this morning, but help us to see your big story. Uh, the story of Jesus and the story of our salvation. So teach us your word, O oh Lord, and may it rule over our hearts. And may, as we leave this place, be changed by it as we go into our work and our labors uh, for your kingdom. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Genesis 1 through 3, uh, that's where we've been. And as I told you at the very beginning of the study, uh, Genesis is often called the book of generations, uh, the story of origins, the story of where we come from. And certainly this makes sense if you think about uh, Genesis 1 and 2 and creation. Uh, it's an origin story. It's a story of our heritage, it's a story why everything around us exists and who made it, and, and the story of why we've been made in his image. As the story unfolds, you might be tempted to think, well, uh, what does this really have to do with me? And as we read the story of Cain and Abel, and as we'll quickly see, it's the story of the first murder in the Bible. You might think, well, what does that even have to do with me? And so the challenge for us this morning is not simply that this may be a familiarized story to you that makes you uh, just kind of read it casually without a close eye. I think another challenge for us is that we would see that somehow this story is an old story that really has nothing to do with us. But I think in so many ways, just like Genesis 1 through 3, just like the story of creation and Adam and Eve and sin and shame, the story of Cain and Abel has a lot to do with our own stories. And I want to challenge you this morning that you would really see your own story here. But if you're going to be a good student of the Bible... A good student of the Bible doesn't simply look for yourself in the Bible. That's a good way to read the Bible in a very wrong way. A good student of the Bible doesn't simply say, well, what does it have to do with me? A good student of the Bible says, what does this have to do with Jesus? Because we deeply believe here at Park City's Presbyterian Church, Jesus' own words, after he rose from the dead, he was walking with his disciples we're told that he began to show his disciples all of the stories about himself beginning in the Old Testament. 
In other words, Jesus taught his disciples that he was there from the very beginning. And all along in Genesis, we've seen whispers and echoes of him. And we're going to see that loud and clear this morning. So not only where do we see ourselves, but where do we see Jesus? And we're going to see both on display. So this is Genesis chapter 4. You've got it in your handout. You can turn in your Bible if you want. And I want to read it for us. Because again, you may just be familiar enough with this that you think you kind of know, you get it. But there is so much in the details of the story of Cain and Abel. Genesis 4 verse 1, now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And so Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. The Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is God's word for us. The first thing I want you to consider as we study this in greater detail, is the story of faith and the story of what it truly means to worship God as the one true God. Now, as we begin to study Cain and Abel and who they are, we learn a couple things right out of the gate in just the first couple verses. And I want to point them out to you. We're told that these are brothers, the sons of Adam and Eve. Not only are we told that they are brothers, but we know that uh, Cain is the older brother and Abel is the younger. That is a theme that we don't have time to talk about this morning. Wish we did, that we will see over and over and over again in the Bible. That the older brother culturally would have seen as the more important brother, the brother who gets the inheritance, the brother who is the, the favored one, the younger brother lesser so. And yet we see that reversed throughout the scriptures and it begins here. Cain is the older brother, Abel's the younger. The other thing that we see is that Cain was a farmer. I want you to look with me. 
This is verse 2. Notice it says, Cain was a worker of the ground. Later, as we look at how God cursed Cain, we see that he, one of the things he did is he took away the fruit of the ground from him. It would no longer yield its fruit. He was a farmer. He was a worker of the ground. And Abel was a keeper of sheep. He was a shepherd. Again, another theme that we'll see throughout the scriptures, the importance of being a shepherd. Abel was a shepherd. King David was a shepherd. King David's greater son, Jesus, is our shepherd. Not only do we see this, but we see that very quickly in the Bible, we see an act of worship. We see two brothers coming before the Lord, bringing an offering to worship the Lord. Look with me, verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. So again, he's a farmer. He's been growing things. And he brings, we don't know what it was. Fruit of the ground doesn't necessarily mean it's actually fruit. It's just what did the ground yield? What did it produce? This is, he brought a crop. He brought an offering, a portion of his crop to the Lord as an offering, as an act of worship. In verse 4, we see Abel's offering. Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. So again, Cain's a farmer. He brought what he could to the Lord as an offering. Abel. A shepherd brought what he could to the Lord as an offering. Two different offerings, two different brothers, and two very different reactions from the Lord. Look at the last part of verse 4. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So here's the first question that you need to wrestle with. Why did the Lord have regard for Abel's offering and have no regard for Cain's. What's the difference? Two brothers, one a farmer, one a shepherd. Does it have to do with what they did? (laughs) The kind of work? I don't think so. All right, two brothers, two offerings. One brought crop, one brought the very first of the flock, the best. Many have wondered, well, maybe it actually has to do with Cain bringing the leftovers. Abel bringing the best. And I think that can be a compelling thing to think about. And and, and in fact, I think it's pretty challenging for us as we think about the way that we offer ourselves to the Lord. The way that we offer, as Apostle Paul says, our bodies as a living sacrifice the way that we worship. As you think about your own life of worship and devotion to the Lord, do you give him the leftovers, the excess? Do you make sure you cover your own bases first and then give him whatever's left? Or do you, like Abel, give the best? Right, look again one more time what it says to us. Verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of fruit. But notice with Abel brought the firstborn of the flock and all the fat portions. I think there's something compelling about that. But I don't think that's the full story either. I think the answer actually has to do with the way that God sees right through us. The way that we so often approach God thinking that we can fool him 
thinking that if we do things a certain way, that it will show him a vision of ourselves that we want to project. And what we see in the Bible over and over and over again is God sees right through it. And I think what we are seeing here is God seeing right through the offering of Cain. He sees right into his soul. And he sees Cain for who he really is. I think the answer has to do with genuine faith. Why do I think that? Well, I think the author of Hebrews helps us. The bottom of your handout, I have a little section from Hebrews. We'll get to that in just a second. But in Hebrews 12, we get a lot that is built off of Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is known as the, um, the hall of faith, the story of all of these patriarchs and Old Testament figures and how they teach us about genuine faith. And if you read the hall of faith in Genesis, uh, Hebrews 11, you'll see the story of Cain and Abel. So it's not on your handout. In a minute, we're going to look at Hebrews 12 and how it applies that. But if you have a Bible, you can go there. You can just listen. In Hebrews 11, I want you to listen how it talks about how the writer, the preacher of Hebrews, a New Testament book, is looking back on the Old Testament. Hebrews 11, verse 4. Preacher of Hebrews says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. I'm going to read it again. I want you to listen closely. Notice the very first two words. I think they're incredibly important. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. Why did God have regard for Abel's sacrifice because Abel offered it in genuine faith. The question, second question I want you to wrestle with this morning is then what is genuine faith? And was it about Abel that shows that he really had it and Cain that he didn't? I think so often in the last, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years of evangelical Christianity, we've reduced faith to a simple proposition do you believe in God or not? Do you accept that God is who he says he is? Check the box, yes or no. And what I want you to see, and I think a warning here, is that God sees right through that. God really sees us down to our souls. He sees right into our hearts in the same way that he saw Adam and Eve in the garden after they sinned. He sees right through us, right through our show, right through our you know, disguises that we hide behind. He sees right through us, into our souls, into our hearts. And what I want you to see is that faith is not simply saying that there is a God or that he exists. I think Cain acknowledged that God exists. But genuine faith is trusting him. And this is the, the definition of faith that we see throughout the scriptures. It's a definition we'll see at the end of our study as we study Abraham. Faith is not simply acknowledging the existence of God. It's not even enough to say that he exists or believe that he exists. It's actually that you would trust him. As you go back to even the first several chapters, the very first question of the Bible asked by Satan in the garden, did God really say? Faith is saying he did say. 
And every one of his promises is true and finds their fulfillment in Jesus. Faith is trusting the Lord. And we see some of this trust in Abel's sacrifice. He trusted the Lord with the firstborn of his sheep. Think about that. He trusted him enough to say, I'm going to give you the first. I'm going to trust that you'll give me more. When you give the leftovers, you're saying, I don't really know if I can trust you. So I'm going to make sure I can do it on my own, whatever I've left over. But you see, with Abel, it was the first. Throughout the Bible, we see giving the first fruits, right? The idea of trusting him with our very lives. Faith, genuine faith, is trusting the Lord. So the question is, do you trust him? Do you trust he is who he says he is? Do you trust him at his word? Do you trust him for all his promises? Do you trust him that he sent Jesus to die on the cross and to rise again? That is genuine faith. And God sees right through their their offerings. We see throughout the Bible that, again, our offerings themselves, left by themselves, is not what makes us acceptable. It's the faith behind the offering, the faith behind the worship. Psalm 51, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. True, genuine sacrifices, offerings that we offer are really our own hearts. Abel offered his, but Cain didn't. And we see this begin to unfold and what happens next. So not only is this story about faith, it's also a story about sin. And as we look at the sin of Cain, I want you to begin to see sin's progression. Sin, especially when you read the most heinous sins in the Bible, the Bible helps us because it doesn't just tell us about the sin that was committed in that heinous act, but we can actually go back and see the progression of sin, how it led to that. So if you're familiar with the Bible, you're familiar with the story of David and how David committed adultery and then committed murder to cover it up. David didn't just decide to do that one day, but there was a progression. A progression that began at a gaze where he looked on a woman who was bathing nude. And as he gave in to that temptation, one thing led to another. Sin produced more sin and produced more sin, and it progressed. To eventually, not only did he commit adultery, but he committed murder. We see the same thing here in the story of Cain and Abel, a progression. Here's Cain. He offers his offering. God sees right through it. He says, I don't have regard for your offering. And notice what happens next. This is in verse five. It says, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And so Cain was very angry and his face fell. Cain was not contrite. Cain was not um, sorrowful. He didn't come before the Lord and say, I'm, I'm a broken man. You've seen right through me. What can I do now to turn back to you? No, he's angry. He's forceful. He's indignant. He says, this isn't fair. <laughs> I wonder if you've ever felt that way before the Lord. This isn't fair. He's looking at his brother. How often do we look at other people, friends, maybe even your own brothers, and say, well, why is he getting everything and I'm not? He's filled with jealousy. He's filled with rage. 
He's angry. And I think we're beginning to see Cain's true colors. This is confirming what God saw all along. That deep in Cain's soul, there was anger and sin, and it was beginning to consume him. And this is what we begin to see about sin. And what's so helpful, I think, about Genesis 4 is then we begin to get not just a story of what happened, but some commentary. Some commentary from the Lord. The Lord says, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? Again, we're going to see another question from God in just a second. But I, think about, I want you to think about God's question to Adam and Eve in the garden. Where are you? It's not as though he didn't know where they were. God was using questions to probe at them to get to their heart. We see the same thing happening here. He knows why Cain is angry. He wants Cain to recognize why he's angry. Cain says, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? Look at verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, notice what it says. Sin is crouching at the door. Sin is crouching. It's a warning. That word crouching is like a lion ready to pounce. Sin is crouching at the door. It is pouncing. It is hiding the bushes, ready to devour you, ready to swallow you up. Sin is crouching at the door. Notice what it says next. The Lord says, its desire is for you. It wants you. Sin is crouching at the door, desiring to consume you. But notice what the Lord says at the end. But you must rule over it. There in this warning, there's a powerful message of hope. A message that if you really hear it, begin to see that even as much as sin devours and consumes us, we actually have been empowered by the Lord to fight it each and every day. I want to show you what I mean from the New Testament. Again, if you have a Bible, I think it can be helpful uh, for you to bring one to these, but you don't always have to have one. You have a Bible app or a Bible. We certainly always put um, the scripture we're going to be in your handout. Uh, but it's helpful as we read the Bible that we read all of it and not just the passage that we're studying. And so I want you to go to a couple places. One is Romans chapter 5 and the other is 1 Peter. Again, as you think about Cain's story, it's easy to see him as this tragic story, but I want you to begin to see your own tragic story here because Cain is all of us. How often has the Lord seen right through you? He sees right through me. How often do, do you respond to the Lord with anger or jealousy? How often have you brought your offering to the Lord with a half-hearted offering? He's us. We are him. How often do we allow sin to go unchecked? All the while, it is festering in us. It's crouching at the door. It seeks to devour us. So in this story, it's also a warning that if you play with sin, it's not like playing with a little kitty, right? <laughs> it's like playing with a lion. And you will be consumed. And we see this throughout the Bible. Romans 5, verse 12 Again, the story is our story. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that is Adam, 
and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Notice what chapter we are in. We're in chapter 4. We have not gotten very far. (laughs) We just read about Adam and Eve. This is their sons. Read that again. Just as sin came through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. Just one generation, and here we are, sin and death. And as we continue to read Genesis, and if you spend time reading the rest of Genesis after our study, after Abraham, it is one of the more difficult books of the Bible to read because it is filled with brokenness and sin and death. You don't have to get very far in the Bible to see this is true. And I think you and I, if we're honest, we live most of our lives trying to avoid these things as if sin is not crouching at the door. We try to minimize it and mitigate against it and do it ourselves. And I think Genesis is warning us in just graphic fashion that this is where sin can lead. The other thing I wanted to point out to you, and um, you may have heard this um, verse before. This is 1 Peter 5. But as you think about sin crouching at the door, it reminds me of Peter's warning about the devil in 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Where he says that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Again, it's another warning that I think it's easy for us to pretend or live in a world where we think, well, surely the devil doesn't exist. Surely that is stuff of make-believe. You know, we, we, we try to, again, minimize these things because we don't want to be honest. We don't want to be transparent. But again, we see this warning in Peter that just like in Genesis, we see this idea of sin crouching like a lion. Peter says the devil is like a lion. He's prowling and he's seeking someone to devour. And it also reminds me of John Owen. He, he said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That we are in a fight, we are in a battle. And if you're not on offense, you need to recognize that um, you're, you're going to die. You're going to lose Every single time. And so again, as you go back to Genesis 4 and you read what the Lord says, he says, it's desire is for you. It's desire is for you. But, and I love the word but in the Bible, but, but you must rule over it. How do we rule over sin? You cannot in your own power rule over sin. You can't. And one of the greatest temptations, I think, of the devil is not simply to tempt us into sin. And whatever it is, as you think of that word, I know it's a big kind of churchy word, but I want you to be very practical this morning, at least with your own hearts before the Lord. Where do you sin at work in your own life right now, even this morning? And whether it's lust or greed or jealousy or rage or selfishness, Whatever that thing is, you will be tempted, just like me, to say, I'm going to figure that out on my own. I'm going to try to minimize it, or I'm going to try to control it. I'm going to try to fight my flesh with my own flesh. And we cannot do it on our own. And what we see in the Bible is that God has actually come to our rescue 
so that in ruling over our hearts, we would rule over sin. And that the more that we actually turn away from sin and allow the Lord, Jesus, to rule our hearts, then we find freedom and we actually see that message of hope and redemption in the story of Cain and Abel. And as we go to our tables, I want to show you why. As the story continues, verse 8, we see that Cain spoke to his Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Half-hearted offering turned to anger, turned to jealousy and rage and led to the first murder of the Bible. And one of the things I want you to think about is every murder after this was simply a copy. But to Cain, this was an original idea. That's how much rage was in his bones. No one had ever killed anyone before. And yet this is what Cain thought to do to his own brother. He murdered him out of jealousy out of anger, out of rage, rage, and it's heinous. It's supposed to be. It's shocking. All sin is heinous. All sin is shocking. The Lord in verse 9 comes to Cain. He says, well, where is Abel, your brother? Again, he knows where Abel is. He wants Cain to admit where Abel is. The Lord's trying to expose him. He's probing at him. He says, where is Abel, your brother? You have to love Cain's answer. I don't know. <laughs> Think of Adam and Eve's answer. Where are you? And they hid themselves. Sometimes I think shame, as we've talked about, is hiding from the Lord in a cowering way. And sometimes I think shame comes out and fighting back against the Lord. I think that's what we're seeing here. He's ashamed. He knows what he did. And so he's fighting back. He says, I don't know where he is. Am I my brother's keeper? What's it to you, God? I don't know where he is. Of course, God knows exactly where he is. Verse 10, the Lord says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. In other words, the blood of your brother is on your hands. You can say you don't know where he is, Cain, and you can deny and you can skirt the issue and you can actually hurl insults back at me. You can try to fight against me, but I see right through you, just as I saw right through your offering, and the blood of your brother is on your hands. Literally, you've been caught red-handed. And the blood of your brother is speaking to me, the Lord says from the ground. What is it saying? What's the blood of Abel saying? It's saying guilty. It's saying, Cain, you're guilty. This is the evidence. There's nothing you can do to hide from it. <laughs> nothing you can do to minimize it. Nothing that you can do. And sometimes I think we have to understand this about sin, that we think, well, it'll just kind of work itself out or go away. You can't take this back. Your brother's dead. And his blood is screaming from the ground, crying from the ground, saying, Cain is guilty. Cain is guilty. And so then in verse 12, God gives Cain his sentence. He says, you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And for the rest of his days, Cain will spend separated from God, 
a fugitive and a wanderer, cut off from the Lord and cut off from his family. It's a punishment that is so great that Cain says, that's greater than I can bear. I'd rather be dead. And the Lord says, no, you don't even get to die. In fact, if anyone even touches you, I won't let it happen. But you're going to live all your days cut off and separated. This is the punishment of sin, brothers. The consequences of allowing sin to go unchecked and allowing it to consume us, it separates us from the Lord. This side of heaven, you might sense that in your own soul. The more that you give in to sin, the further away from the Lord that you are. What we see again in the Bible as the story unfolds is that if you allow sin to consume you without the cross, you will be separated from the Lord for all eternity. And yet there is hope in this story. And you say, where? (laughs) Where's the hope? Where's the redemption? Where's the power? How can we rule over sin? Again, Hebrews 12 helps us. This is where we're going to end. Hebrews 12 is the bottom of your sheet. Again, this comes after Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, where the preacher of Hebrews talks about the faith of Abel. And then in Hebrews 12, notice what the preacher says. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in the festival gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Did you hear it? The preacher says, You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What's he talking about? How does the blood of Jesus speak a better word than the blood of Abel? What is the word that the blood of Abel speaks? Guilty. What is the word that the blood of Jesus speaks? Redeemed. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word. A better word that doesn't speak our condemnation, even though we are guilty because our sin put him on the cross. But his blood speaks redeemed, washed, purified, renewed, saved. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word. And through the power of his blood, we now can rule over sin. Not in our flesh, but in his flesh, broken for you and me. And so, brothers, this story is not only our story, it's the story of Jesus. A foretaste of our brother being murdered for you and me. For our brother, Jesus laying his life down so that his blood would speak a better word, a word that would save us from sin and now give us the power to rule over it, not through our flesh, but through his death and resurrection. So as you go to your tables, I want you to wrestle with these things. I want you to be honest about where the story strikes you, but more than anything, I want you to leave today knowing how the blood of Jesus 
sprinkled over you has declared a better word. Let me pray for you, send it to your groups. Lord, be with these men now as they open the scriptures together, as they consider this story that is so challenging for us on so many levels. But I do pray that as we leave and we go to our work and go to whatever we have next, that we would know we have been covered with the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. And that as we walk today, your blood now speaks a better word over us that we are walking as those who have been redeemed and saved and that we have been made clean. May we walk in the purity of the way that you have washed us by your blood today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.